0: Hello, welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives, where today we're going to be talking about ancient algal blooms and their impact on past civilizations. Make sure you stay tuned. riley what's up buddy man
1: what is up huh i started door dashing oh really got to pay for the student loan somehow
0: (laughs) oh yeah i mean that's yeah you're you were always like a a side gig kind of guy though as far as as long as i've known you which is all the credit to you i couldn't do that so i I
1: delivered filet mignon to somebody in walmart
0: (laughs) wait in walmart (laughs) yeah okay
1: he's like bring it to the service counter i was like jesus (laughs) okay i was like i mean just because you work at walmart doesn't mean you can't eat filet mignon but just eating filet mignon while working like on the shift at walmart i was like that's an interesting one you know what i'm Mm saying i was like wait i feel like you should enjoy that at home sir
0: yeah i feel like (laughs) i feel like i don't want to eat steak while i'm at work that's what i'm saying You know. Like, yeah, I feel like I want to like enjoy that in the comfort of my own house. Because I was like, "Do you have a microwave back there?" Like I want.
1: I feel like you need this at peak heat. Ah, you don't uh, want you a don't microwave want just, like, that either. Hmm. Ah. Got it from a hibachi stand. Ooh. So like, as I was waiting, somebody was like doing <laughs> the show, and I was like, "Yay!" As I was waiting. <laughs> put,
0: put the shrimp in your pocket, right? <laughs>
1: I, I, I was taking the back with my mouth open. I was like, "Here."
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the little little sake spray he does.
1: <laughs> you, know, you know. Me next. <laughs>
0: um <laughs> uh, it's an interesting okay. one
1: And um not sure if it's worth it or not but i was like you know what we'll try it out
0: yeah i feel like de- well, so i have a couple so one i think delivery people have some of the funniest stories out there just because you mm-hmm. get to just see all different people at different walks of life mm-hmm. and i think the same thing about people who've worked in the service industry so like i've worked at i worked at kmart my entire Undergrad, and that I was,
1: forgot about that. Yeah, you
0: just you meet all kinds of people, and I also think that if I think everyone should work in the service industry for at least like a year in their life, because it just gives you a whole different perspective. At least for me personally, I think I'm a worse shopper because I worked in the service industry. Mm-hmm. So like, if I see like a like a a sale sign, it's obviously in the wrong spot. Someone, you know, someone be like, oh, like we can get that at a really good deal. I'm like, I was. This it's not even their fault. Like, why are you gonna yell at them? Like, no. they don't know what's happening. It wasn't their fault. Why are you gonna yell at them? You know. I um,
1: I worked at McDonald's for my first job, mm. and that I was t- so young that I couldn't make the food. Oh, um, I I think I was thirteen or just turned fourteen. Oh. I was very young, and um, so I just worked the cash register in the back
0: at Kmart was more just like just people just being just rude you know they just feel entitled Mm -hmm. all the time I remember Mm -hmm. it was like my first week there and I worked in electronics so I was just in charge of like TVs and stuff Mm -hmm. so we we kept a pretty good list of what what we had in stock especially for TVs because they're obviously so expensive and you don't want Mm to you want to make sure you don't lose any Mm -hmm. so one woman came up and she asked if we had a TV and I said, no, ma'am, it doesn't look like we have it. And she's like, well, can you check in the back? And I'll, everyone thinks, just spoiler alert to anyone who thinks that the back is a place, if it was in the back, it'd be in the front, unless oh. it just came off the truck. If it was in the back, it'd be in the front, I promise you. <laughs> so this this may say a lot about my character. So what I did is I walked in the back, and I sat on my phone for five minutes. I came back out and said, sorry, ma'am, I, don't, I didn't see it back there. So <laughs> maybe it says something about me, but... I It oh, no. wasn't back there. I didn't I know what else to do. That
1: probably made the lady feel like you, you know, did something too. So I yeah. feel like you're fine.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, this, well, yeah. I think lying to people is sometimes okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was a white lie.
0: Yeah, the harmless lies. The harmless lies, I should harmless. say.
1: Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay.
0: <laughs> what else you got going on, man?
1: That's about it, honestly. Okay. Um, it's uh, President's Day when we're doing this so oh, got yeah. monday off
0: oh nice yeah i Get don't a... have tomorrow off so that's yeah
1: i know sam doesn't have it either no. and, uh, Yeah, and i'm very hmm. yeah well just living life other than that man
0: yeah okay rachel and i we're we're starting to look for places to move for when Stop, she gets her, really? her new her new job yeah Dude, she, are you gonna be sad leaving auburn so it's very inconvenient to move Mm-hmm. But we're also looking at bigger places, so that'll be nice. Wow. So I'm kind of caught between two minds where I want a nicer, bigger place, mm-hmm. but uh, there is a convenience of just being right down the road from everything, you know? Have you ever so heard of Lake just, Martin? Yeah. Huh?
1: <laughs> Lake Martin, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you can move there. Or I guess you don't know where... Yeah, we don't know. know. It's <laughs> either going to gonna be yeah, you don't need like it, an hour
0: away in mm-hmm. kind of the east or west. So we're, we're looking... <sighs> We're looking into Georgia right now and kind of see what's over there. No. We found some uh, spots. So, yeah.
1: Then you're going to have to deal with the over time.
0: Yeah. Well, it, so coming to campus won't be bad because mm-hmm. I gain an hour coming back. So I don't yeah. have to, and it's an hour commute. So I don't have to wake up any earlier or any later, which mm-hmm. is like ideal. But obviously on the way back, I lose an hour. So if I get off at five, I'm getting home at what seven yeah getting home Mm -hmm. at seven instead of six so
1: crazy yeah but
0: you know gotta do what you gotta do man you gotta make sacrifices in a relationship so and she's (laughs) she's gonna be kicking ass so i can't i can't complain (laughs) i have to do an hour every day now everyone
1: matt has a bicycle (laughs) this is when he's saying sacrifices
0: (laughs) no if that's the only if that's the biggest sacrifice i have to make in our in our soon-to-be marriage I think we're gonna be just fine just because I have to commute an hour I don't mean to be woe as me
1: your spouse (laughs) having a full-time job
0: I know bankrolling
1: your education
0: whoa 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 (laughs) all right I one's bankrolling my education but me okay Uh, besides that cool yeah that's pretty much all we got going on um I'm I'm guessing you saw the news about the train derailment over in Ohio
1: I've heard whisperings about it. Um, Okay. Like it's like a secret, but just um, I haven't looked too far into it. Okay. some fires this week on on my side, but there was something like, what if a trail derailment happens here um, in our area? So like that's to the extent as I heard that it was a chemical spill. um, And they're like, well, if that happens here, are we prepared? Emergency preparedness? We don't have... (laughs) A railroad in our county. Oh, okay. So, we're like,
0: yeah. Maybe I mean, it still it still could be like a watershed wide thing, right? So if you watershed, have watershed, yeah, semis, so right? Yeah. So just you, you got to be careful with so. stuff like it's that. It's
1: sparking those kind of conversations. I'm, I'm, yeah. My group isn't in charge of that, but it. It's okay. Just, I know in our area, like it's. I was like, that that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think we do have stuff, so maybe it's time it's, to look at it a little bit more. I don't know.
0: It's good to think about, and there's, I, I can kind of give a little synopsis here. Yes. Just in give case. You, what, so, what's going on? Yeah. So for those of, I mean, just to kind of refresh everyone's memories. So there was a train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. There's a lot of news on this kind of, there's a lot of people with all kinds of accusations about this side of the other. So I was trying to kind of read between the lines and try to find as much support as I could for these actual claims. So this is what. I found based off of the facts that I found. So, again, just to kind of refresh everyone's memories, a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Several of the tankers posed a threat to threat of explosion, so nearby residents were evacuated while authorities chose to breach five cars filled with vinyl chloride, which is a hazardous gaseous very carcinogenic chemical that is also highly flammable. So they breached them and ignited them. So they self ignited it? Yes.
1: Oh. So they okay. breached
0: them and they ignited them, which that's why you're seeing this huge plumes of black smoke. Mm-hmm. So if you're wondering why in the world they would do that, so again, vinyl chloride is very hazardous. It's chronically hazardous. So it's very carcinogenic and can lead to all sorts of liver cancer in particular. Jeez. So the when you ignite vinyl chloride, it releases phosphine and hydrogen chloride which are also very acutely toxic, harmful gases, which is why people were evacuated. Mm-hmm. But they don't pose, generally, they don't really pose any chronic threat. So if you're exposed to high doses, kind of right then and there, it can you can have a lot of health issues. But no one, if everyone evacuated there, doesn't seem to pose a long-term health threat. So uh, the, fos- the
1: lesser of two evils, huh?
0: Yeah, that's He's exactly what coast. I wrote. That's exactly what I wrote. Is it's it's oh, the lesser of two evils they chose wow. there. So that's it's crazy. it's a tough spot to be in. But in case you're also wondering, so phosphine and hydrogen chloride gases were they were bi- they were used during World War One. They were kind of big chemical gas attacks that was happening during the trench warfare.
1: Oh, yeah. they were they were used as a weapon.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh. phosphine and hydrogen chloride. Yeah, Jeez. so yeah, like mustard Pretty-
1: gas. Or that's something different
0: yeah, that's something a little different mustard really? yes i think um they they mentioned phosphine like specifically
1: but isn't that crazy the stuff that gets transported over rails
0: yeah i mean i think i'd rather be over rails than on the road though
1: yeah i don't know and then you think about like just shipments in general yeah over the road mm-hmm. like think of i'm not i'll like point out a company about think about the large company that ships things around the United States and just Mm -hmm. all the crazy stuff that they ship. Yeah. I don't know if they can ship something like that, but like, no, absolutely not. Some of those science, science stuff that we got, like, like, um, those science companies need to ship from one place to the other. And it's like, yeah, that at some point hazardous things needs to go from a to B.
0: Yeah. I think the quantity quantity has something to do with it too. Oh, for sure. You know, because, I mean, we, we would get, like, what, a couple, of, what, like, a gallon at a time of, like, sulfuric mm-hmm. acid, which, don't get me wrong, if that broke, that'd be a problem, but it wouldn't be this, like, huge yeah. citywide issue, but... Well, I mean, yeah, you, you have
1: oil tankers, too, going, like, if oh, that yeah, got absolutely. pierced and sparked, like, boom, so... Yeah,
0: that's a... Yeah, this is... Uh, this is, like, a whole other kind of rabbit hole we could definitely jump mm-hmm. down, but... Mm-hmm up to this point uh there's there's been a lot reported about the ohio river being essentially poisonous and i don't really want to downplay all of that so you know like i mean any level of contamination is certainly concerning but there's of course levels to this so first there have been low levels of butyl acrylate detected in the ohio river high levels of butyl acrylate can cause irritation and breathing issues but several toxicologists have come out and said one the detected concentrations haven't reached those harmful thresholds mm-hmm. and two water treatment facilities facilities are pretty capable of removing those contaminants from the water again this isn't to say that it doesn't pose a risk to wildlife but it is you know it it can be a potentially chronic pollutant for wildlife and then even as far as acutely in the immediate in the immediate aftermath of those derailments, about 3,500 fish were found dead as an immediate result of the acute poisoning. No terrestrial animals have been found dead as a result of the derailed chemicals up to this point. The state is in the process right now, as we're kind of podcasting right now, is in the process of testing tissue samples from livestock and pets that are sick or have died shortly after the derailment as a precaution and ohio epa and the us epa are coordinating with affected municipalities to ensure that water intakes are temporarily closed as the most intense part of the spill they call that they keep referring to like the spill plume so there's this mm-hmm. kind of like high concentration plume that's working its way down the ohio river really so yeah Jeez. yeah epa is tracking it kind of in real time just about so they're trying to coordinate with municipalities they're Like, all right you need to shut off your intakes like between now and you know however many days from now so that's again none of this sounds like the best solution but i mean even when you talk to you know i'm sure when your watershed or your water district people are talking i mean if you have a high amount of contaminants released into your watershed what really can you do you know in the absence of like a massive mobile water cleaning system which to my knowledge doesn't really exist it's hard to say what can really be done to treat it it's more of a prevent thing you know
1: I was part of, a, so not in my current position, but a prior position, um, I was part of like a, a spill, like a spill happened. Mm-hmm. Oh. The group I worked for and um, we had to go through this process mm-hmm. and um, it was just somebody left a valve on in one of the facilities and <clears throat> dumped a bunch of stuff and it was, it could have been really bad, but what was dumped was a food grade version of the really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I was like, oh, like, that, that's that's as simple as it is huh it's like mm-hmm. someone, and a couple you know thousands of gallons of this thing went out and it's like whoa really and um so yeah the process of people like looking through it and then like alerting the epa like it's interesting um mm-hmm. but yeah that's there's there's things involved but also like yeah that just accidents happen so it's yeah. yeah, then it goes to the the mitigation portions, like just mm-hmm. mitigate it as best you can. Yeah, the plume going down the Ohio River, jeez, that's yeah, crazy. that's
0: that's scary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I think that I mean that that may be an area of kind of exploration for any engineers out there is that kind of rapid response to like on site water treatment for kind of chemicals or anything like that. I know that when, I think it was about a year ago, or actually, no, I just, I saw this guy at a conference at the Albany conference I went to last year. So there's this company that kind of made this giant algae vacuum. So they do it a lot in Florida. So it's also stupid expensive. Exactly the company you're talking about. Yeah. It's stupid expensive. But so say you you have a, huh?
1: You should work for them when you're done.
0: I think they're more engineers than algae people. They still need you, man. Yeah, that's fair. They work for the army with the army corps. I know. I think in this one case, yeah, they did because there was like a really, really gross bay that had a terrible algal bloom. Yeah, and they called them out, and they said they got it cleaned up within like you know a couple of days. And it is really cool to see. Did you watch the able... video of it? Mm-hmm. It's literally it's really... like
1: a conveyor belt, and then there's just a bucket at the end. That...
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of just like a giant barge. They bring in like shipping container. It's all modular. So they have like a shipping container of like the power source, and then yeah. like the refuse. It's it's pretty impressive their kind of workflow they have going there. Yeah, I know, but yeah it's just like a giant vacuum cleaner kind of thing, yeah, if you so, have a
1: floating mat of algae, like mm-hmm. that seems reasonable, I think yeah, they it did seems quite like well with it, so
0: it's certainly the simplest way to get rid of that problem is to just mm-hmm. get rid of the algae because you're also getting rid of a decent number of the nutrients. you're probably getting rid that's of that's what a I'm lot saying, the, yeah, you physically yeah. have to remove it, yeah, yeah. and then you're you getting I know you're getting rid of a lot of the toxins, hopefully. Because most yeah. of the time, the toxins are found inside the cell, not outside the cell. Until yeah, the as long as you
1: don't the cell, you're but, fine.
0: Yeah, so it's... I like the idea. It's definitely expensive. Like, I was going down the cost, and he's like, oh, really? Yeah, this is mostly, like, a government thing. Not really, like, a small yeah. town thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, really yeah, amazing. I believe it. Oh, my gosh. So, huh. yeah. But, anyway. So, speaking of algal blooms, how about yeah. that transition? So... Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about ancient algal blooms and whether or not they impacted impacted past civilizations. So just just a little kind of to give you an idea of how I came up with this or how I wanted to start looking at this. So in a couple episodes of this podcast and definitely in our articles over at Freshwater Perspectives, We've covered harmful algal blooms in pretty great length. Now, part of that is because Riley and I know a lot about the subject, and it's also because they're incredibly relevant to the health of humans and really entire ecosystems as as a whole, honestly. I mean, you don't really have to look any further than the you know, Toledo water crisis that happened back in 2014, 2015, and all the articles related to that talking about this massive toxic bloom of cyanobacteria that forced the city of Toledo, Ohio to cut off its entire water supply to citizens in order to prevent them from ingesting those harmful toxins. And so kind of with that in mind, Riley, you know, this as well as I do, but if anyone picks up a scientific paper about cyanobacteria or about harmful algal blooms, almost all of them are guaranteed to have some variation of the phrase harmful algal blooms have been increasing in severity for the past however many years. Right. It's like almost in all of them. I, I'm pretty the sure. I've paper. Yeah. <laughs> So whether or not that's true has been the subject of many review articles and quantitative analyses in recent years, but we're not here to talk about those today. The point I'm really kind of trying to get at here is that most of the literature out there may unintentionally be suggesting that severe harmful algal blooms are a uniquely recent thing. And we're going to figure out if that's actually the case in today's podcast. How does that sound?
1: That sounds good. Yeah, definitely. um, Increasing... In severity, the the question is, and I agree, increasing since when? Like, when mm-hmm. was your start date? There's the, mm-hmm. really not a good start date since the the nineties. Mm-hmm. Since you know, when? So yeah, definitely agree.
0: Yeah, so I'm not going to go again. I'm not going to go into too much detail about what a harmful algal bloom is, because as I said earlier, Riley and I have already. Done a whole lot of work and put and published a whole suite of articles up on freshwaterperspectives.substack.com that are free for anyone to access and go read at your leisure so go ahead on over there but to kind of abbreviate the kind of the big kind of take-home points here in case anyone's unfamiliar harmful algal bloom is kind of a catch-all term used to describe massive overgrowth of primary productivity The reason these are harmful is that these blooms can remove the water of oxygen as they decompose they can also release high concentrations of harmful toxins in freshwater systems most blooms are dominated by either green algae or a cyanobacteria species and in marine systems they're more often referred to as red tides thanks to the red pigmented dinoflagellates that cause those blooms and generally again generally speaking Most harmful algal blooms, at least today, are attributed to high nutrient runoff in urban or agricultural areas. So that's all I'm going to say about that. There's a ton more to learn about these, so head on over to the website to read more about that. So if we wind back the historical clock, the question is, do we see any evidence of large, potentially harmful blooms of algae? In short, the answer is actually yeah. But we're going to go ahead and talk about two interesting cases that thanks to the hard work of the respective research teams, we can kind of figure out why or or how they kind of came up with that. So let's start with the oldest scientifically reported algal bloom. Okay. So in 2019, it doesn't sound that old. That's just when the paper was published. Um, (laughs) Four (laughs) years ago. Yeah. (laughs) A multinational collaboration of Swiss, German, and Austrian research teams published a paper in Earth and Planetary Science Letters that shows evidence of a severe algal bloom in a Swiss lake dated around 100 CE. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering how exactly they could have known this with such precision and detected the algae, and I'm here to walk you through it. So these researchers study what is called paleolimnology or the study of the history of lakes. Um, I I consider myself more of a limnologist, so I care more about what the lakes are doing right now, whereas paleolimnologists care more about what the lake was doing pretty much every day until up to right now. They care more about what was going on in the lake before. So they do this by taking huge core samples of lakes and carefully measuring things like nitrogen, phosphorus, Heavy metals, algal pigments, toxins, organic matter, and all, all other stuff, depending on what they actually are looking to answer the questions.
1: What's the core sample?
0: So, their core sample. So, how they actually do this. So, depending on how deep the water is, all they really do is they take this tube. So, imagine... I'm going I'm to simplify this incredibly. So, imagine, like, this big tube, right? So, big tube... And then you have a big metal pole at the top and then at the end of the tube there's a plug and then there's a wire that goes from the top of that plug through the tube through the pole so that if you pull the wire you can kind of hold the plug in place does that make sense Mm -hmm. okay so you then stick the pole and the tube down until you hit the sediment until you hit where all the dirt is at the bottom of the lake Then you hold the wire that the plug is. So now the plug is sitting at the top of the water, or sorry, at the bottom of the water at the top of the sediment. So then you push down the pipe. So the pipe is moving down past the plug. Okay, so it's creating a vacuum. So you go down as far as you can, you pull up, and then you have this section of of dirt. It's just a section of dirt. And then you do that as many times as you can until you hit kind of a hard, bottom so you get as much soft sediment as you can and then we'll get into more so kind of in general simply the kind of the the depth of your core can tell you a lot about its history so lakes with really really deep cores so like five ten feet or longer are likely really productive because they have lots of biomass that has been falling to the bottom being decomposed and then becoming more sediment in lakes with really short cores tend to be less productive so that's all generally speaking, of course, but think of it this way. So if you sample two lakes that are about the same age, but one is super green all the time and the other one is super clear, the clear lake's entire, say, 5,000 year history can be contained in less than a foot of sediment. Where the green lake's history, foot? yeah, less than a foot. 5,000
1: per foot? Really? It depends. It depends. Oh, I, it I depends. guess, right? Because yeah.
0: if there's if there's nothing in the water column falling down, you can't make sediment, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So, where the Green Lake's history can be over ten feet, so you can have five thousand years over ten feet. Could be eighteen feet. Could be however many feet. Mm-hmm. So this means that one inch in the Green Lake can correspond to one year, or one inch of sediment in the Clear Lake can be one century. So you get what I'm saying. So you really have to be mm-hmm. careful how to decide to portion off your set your subsamples for your core you know, because you're really trying to get in that high resolution. So getting back to aging the core and seeing exactly how far back this core goes and what years correspond to what depths. In other words, if you measured algal pigments and found a huge spike 25 inches down into your core, when exactly was, when exactly was that and what was happening around the lake at this time? So it kind of, you got to turn into like an anthropologist at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Some of you out there may be thinking that all they have to do is some radiocarbon dating i'm sure you've heard that kind of buzzword used a lot and you know that just kind of solves your problem but it's not quite that simple so radiocarbon dating is great because it's pretty accurate but it also requires a decent amount of what are called macro fossils such as twigs charcoal organic matter you need like stuff to actually measure right you can't just put dirt into the machine and then it gives you a date you need like stuff you need like organic matter that actually has a lot of carbon in it so in terrestrial fossils this isn't really a problem but stuff often decays rapidly in aquatic sediments not to mention it's super expensive but if you have the material it's always worth it that being said if you get a handful of radiocarbon dates for a lake then you really only know the date of that section and what if something in or around the lake changed to make the sediment accumulate at different rates right so this is where Mm -hmm. again stuff can kind of happen really differently So, again, let's say we have a four-foot core. I find a twig in that core that's about a foot down, and it gets dated back to a 1,000 years ago. Can I then assume that the whole core spans 4,000 years? It's a pretty big assumption to make, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So then you have, at that point, you're assuming that the same amount of sediment accumulated at a constant rate for the past however many years, which probably didn't happen, right? So do you...
1: I don't know the answer to this. (laughs) My guess is you would need... You need more than one point of reference, maybe, for each. So, as far as you go, you need more Definitely. than one twig, for example.
0: Yeah, the more the better, 100%. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, the more the better. But you can also use other radioactive isotopes that can be measured, albeit not very easily. So, these other radioactive isotopes include cesium 137, americium 241, radium 226, and lead 210. These, along with your carbon-14 dates from your macro fossils, can all be fed into a a statistical model that gives you surprisingly good accuracy for your dates. I don't want to bog everyone down with the kind of details and the nitty-gritty methods, but this stuff is really cool. And anyone listening can really sound smart to their friends talking about radioisotopes. So, cesium-137 and americium-241 are both radioactive isotopes that are fairly common in nature, but super common byproducts of nuclear waste and nuclear bombs. Hmm. So, was there ever a period in time when nuclear testing was super common? Or was there a very unfortunate nuclear meltdown in 1986? Well, it just so happens... That if you test a core for cesium-137 and americium-241, you'll see two huge peaks, especially for cesium. These two peaks will correspond to the unfortunate Chernobyl meltdown in 1986 and the height of atmospheric nuclear testing in 1963. This then gives you two solid years for your model that you know, like, bam, bam. I know these are accurate.
1: That's interesting. I wonder if... um there would be remnants, whatever you want to call it, or like traces from like the nuclear tests, if I remember in my U.S. history, right, that happened Mm -hmm. like in Nevada and stuff out west.
0: So from my understanding, so when I say the height of nuclear testing in 1963, so that Mm -hmm. was happening all over the world, and it was also atmospheric nuclear testing. Crazy. That resulted in a lot of fallout. Mm-hmm. So that was more of like a global thing. So, yes, that definitely contributed to it. But also, you know, uh, Russia was where the Soviet Union was doing their thing. And um, so, yeah, yeah, there were a lot of countries doing. Side
1: stuff. note, have you ever seen, I think it's HBO that did like the Chernobyl kind of docu docu docudrama maybe about?
0: Unfortunately, I heard it was really <sighs> good, though.
1: It's really good. It's a little bit, well, I won't ruin it for you, but like one of the portions was like how other you know officials other countries found out about it was like they had their um atmospheric testing going on and they're like hey we're getting a huge hit of radiation uh anything Mm. going on and i was like no we are we're doing great
0: (laughs) oh
1: it's like i don't think we're doing good oh no but then it was like i can't say for sure first off it was don't quote me on this because it was a very Mm -hmm. long time when i saw that and i think oh there was just some portions of that docudrama that was like you know based on true events but not all of mm-hmm. it's not real so yeah it kind of right. dramatic
0: dramatization yeah
1: dramatization yeah there it is mm-hmm. so but, okay yeah.
0: yeah it's on my list on my growing list of shows i need to watch that's but, a good one yeah but in case you're wondering so that unfortunate chernobyl meltdown it is much more of a european kind of standard peak mm-hmm. It doesn't show up quite as nicely in north american uh samples just because of the way you know the trade winds and whatnot blow. so but because of the also unfortunate fukushima meltdown i believe in 2011 i think it was 2011. anyway yeah um so that that can be used as a cesium standard here in, in north america so again so that gives you two solid years to you know, that gives your model so that you know those those years are 100 accurate so it kind of really ramps up your your accuracy there and then the last thing last couple things you can test is radium 226 and lead 210 so in short lead 210 is always falling it's just always kind of fallen from the atmosphere just the way that the kind of radiocarbon decay works and it's always falling into lakes it's getting into sediments as a result of this decay and sedimentation sedimentation rate is super important for us to understand if an inch of mud is five years or 50 years. And since radium decays into lead, if you plot radium-226 in your core in relation to lead-210 in your sediment core, the point where those two points meet is about 1600 years ago, since that's how long it takes radium to decay into lead. So that also gives you a pretty good date. That's crazy. And then, yeah, and then also your your lead-210, won't be this nice curve it might be so it could be a nice kind of decaying curve if your sedimentation rate is constant but usually it's a kind of like squiggly line so that also gives your model a nice idea of how the sedimentation rate has changed so yeah so that gives you so that's kind of how you age lake mud but back back to the swiss lake so this collaborative research team was looking to understand how land use around lake merton in switzerland changed over the past 2000 years the team did the aging stuff I talked about and measured things like organic carbon and magnetic susceptibility, which tells you about how much iron is in the sediments, which then gives you an idea of whether or not terrestrial runoff that got into the lake changed throughout the lake's history. So if your magnetic susceptibility is going up or down, you're either getting more or less runoff from the surrounding area.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Same
0: thing. thing with the so I, don't, I guess I don't want to get too bogged down, but depending on how much carbon versus nitrogen is in your system, uh, terrestrial kind of woody organic matter has a lot of carbon relative to nitrogen. So if your carbon to nitrogen ratio is high, C to N, yeah, right? High. Yes, if that's high, if your C to N ratio is high, you're getting a lot of terrestrial runoff because it's more of that woody organic matter. Where if it's lower, you're getting much more internal cycling of nutrients.
1: Makes sense.
0: Yeah. Again, very complicated stuff, but most of these papers do a pretty good job breaking it down. So, the results showed that around 450 BCE, the lake started to see an increase of organic matter and magnetic susceptibility, meaning that something around the lake was changing. But the question was what? Well, this is where a paleolimnologist then becomes an anthropologist because they had to go digging in the history books and find evidence of what was going on in the area around 450 BC. And it turns out that the Latin, a Celtic tribe, had settled the area in the region of Switzerland around 450 BCE and likely would have been farming, which supports their findings. But the real fun starts around 100 CE when there is a massive spike in everything that they were measuring. This period corresponds to the growth of the city of Aventicum, which was part of the ever-expanding Roman Empire. At its height, Aventicum had about 20,000 citizens and pretty intense agriculture. That combined with massive deforestation to construct the city's defensive walls resulted in huge influxes of nutrients into the lake, which led the researchers to conclude that the lake was highly eutrophic. This eutrophic state would continue until the collapse of the Roman Empire around 500 500 CE, when the lake looked to recover slightly until the onset of the Frankish kingdoms and the official establishment of the city of Merton, around 900 CE, and from then the lake continued to trend towards the eutrophic state it's at today. So, isn't that interesting that this lake was pretty unproductive for much of its history, then had roughly 500 years of eutrophication, then recovered, then became eutrophic again.
1: Based on human inputs too that's crazy first off just so crazy to think like a human perspective that there's just cities that don't exist anymore and then like Mm -hmm. also whole entire empires don't Mm -hmm. exist anymore Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe it's an american thing where like this is gonna go on forever and then it's like well maybe not (laughs) (laughs) like you don't have no idea
0: well I don't want to get too bogged down in history, but it is funny to think because I think everyone, whenever we talk about at least American politics, where you say America is so young relative Mm -hmm. to other countries. But you look around and you're like, well, Germany's only been unified since like the 1990s. And Russia used to be the Soviet Union until like the late 80s or mid 90s. Things
1: change constantly. Yeah. Like. Yeah. hmm.
0: But yeah. Yeah. But then
1: going to Rome. Like, when we went, and then you're mm. like, holy moly. Like, the Colosseum has been up for so long. Isn't that mm-hmm.
0: crazy? Yeah. Oh, I oh, like the
1: aqueducts, too, and it's like, holy yeah. moly. Like, what? Are you for real?
0: I was yeah. listening back to our reservoir, or our dam episode, and we were talking about Roman concrete. And I said that they didn't find out the formula for Roman concrete. I think mm-hmm. I just read a news article a couple weeks ago. They found the formula for Roman concrete. Really? Yeah, it was something about, like, it wasn't about what was in it. It was about how they treated it. So, like, Uh-oh. it was something about they treated it at, like, a certain temperature that then made everything kind of melt. I don't know. It's crazy. over my head. But yeah. they, they figured out how to make strong concrete now. So It's that's still
1: cool. there. Isn't it yep. bananas?
0: They did something right. But, yeah, I just think the fact that, well, one, this is a pretty crazy – it's just, it's a really interesting field of study because usually when we're kind of studying lakes, well, one, we can see what's happening. Right. And we're kind of worried about the, what's happening right now. So we know what's happening right now. We are like, Oh, there's, you know, we have an idea of what the watershed looks like. Now we have pretty good records. Of what happened previously, at least within the last like hundred years or so around a lot of lakes. But if you're looking back 1500 years ago, people probably just didn't write anything down. So you're like, I don't know what happened around this Lake. So then you have to go digging in literature or history books to be like, all right, well, it looks like the Celtic people around this area around this time. So it was probably them. And it's just absolutely wild. So this is, this requires a lot more homework than a lot of other fields of study. But Mm -hmm. so if you notice though, I made no mention of algae in summarizing that paper. And that's because measuring algal pigments in Lake mud is really difficult. And as a matter of fact, only a handful of labs around the world are able to do this, but one of those labs, Riley, just happens to be here at Auburn University. Woo! Yeah, Dr. Matt. Yeah, Dr. Matt Waters' paleolimnology lab here on campus does a lot of work in Central America, trying to understand whether or not several highly eutrophic and toxic lakes were ever eutrophic in their past.
1: Great name, great yeah. guy. I mean, he what is- better name to be studying water?
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Waters yeah yeah yep. and his team his research team partnered with researchers from the University of Florida and two other research teams from Guatemala and published a paper in 2021 in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that tells the story of Lake Amatitlan Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: so similar to the previous paper from Switzerland Lake Amatitlan is currently a highly eutrophic lake that suffers from regular intense and toxic algal blooms Dr. Waters and several researchers learned to know if the lake was always this nasty, and the team collected an 18-foot-long sediment core from the lake and collected all sorts of data from it, including algal pigments, nitrogen, and phosphorus. 18 feet! And then they'd have to ship it back to Auburn, too? Yeah. Whoa. No. Is yeah, that crazy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Talking to his team about how They're like, well, one, so this is like an aside, but obviously whenever you're going to do any trip, you want to make sure you have everything packed, right? So, like, if Mm -hmm. I'm just going sampling about an hour away, I'm so paranoid I'm going to forget something. Yeah, I can't imagine going to Central America, and you're like, oh, we forgot this. Well, okay, I guess we're done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty crazy. But
0: I was talking to his PhD student, and I think something like that kind of happened, Mm -hmm. but I think waters was there like five years ago and it turns out like the the i don't know what the word is like the company or the the state agency that was in charge of the lake just kept some of their sampling equipment but was using it as like a drainage pipe or something so he was like oh can can we use that again they're like oh (laughs) sure i guess if you still need it oh that's what it was so they so because the lake core so this this sediment core so it was 18 feet deep and okay. the lake itself was really deep it was, it was like tens of meters i don't have i should have wrote down the exact depth but it was a really mm-hmm. deep lake so like i said you kind of have this tube on a long on a long pole mm-hmm. but as you, can, as you can imagine as you're pushing down that pole can kind of bow and you're mm-hmm. then your core can kind of not be straight but obviously mm-hmm. you want it to be as straight as possible mm-hmm. so they had to get like a bunch of huge pvc pipes to kind of make sure the to kind of support the pole like pipe within a pipe yeah pipe yep. within a pipe <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's what that's what it was so they they used that like five years ago and then the state agency was using it as like drainage pipes so like can, can we use those again and they were like that's yeah hilarious. sure dude whatever freak but <laughs>
1: <laughs> here's your dumb pipe <laughs> yeah
0: so like you would expect they found a whole ton of toxins and nutrients at the top of the core corresponding to the lake's very recent history but they also found high pigments and nutrients around halfway down. They did all their aging stuff that I talked about, and they found that there was a period of time in which Amatitlan was highly eutrophic from about 500 to 1200 CE. Now, just like the previous study, they needed to find out what was going on around the lake during that time. Uh, The team did a pretty impressive amount of digging through records and anthropology journals and ended up comparing their results with four other history slash anthropology papers, the first outline the succession of the Maya civilization that would have been inhabiting the area around the lake. I'm not a historian, and I won't go too deep into the Maya peoples, but there's essentially a kind of four periods that are kind of recognized as, the, as how you separate kind of Maya civilization. So mm-hmm. one is the pre-classic period, in which they're kind of just starting to get going, I guess is the mm-hmm. right way to put it. The classic period is right when they hit their peak So, all their cities have the peak amount of population and stuff like that. Post-Classic is where their sudden collapse takes place. And then there's Post-Conquest, which is after the Spanish conquistadors come in and and do their thing. Hmm. So, the second was an archaeological paper that characterized the Maya succession based on their pottery designs. Did not look too far into that, but it was... Really? Yeah, they separated it into one, two, three, four, five, six. They separated the Maya into six different periods based off of, again, the type of pottery designs they were using. So Mm -hmm. pretty impressive there. But whoever worked on that paper, that was Arroyo et al. 2020. So props to them. Mm -hmm. And the third summarized the landscape changes around the lakes based off of phytoplankton fossils and pollen in a different core from the area. And then the last estimated the population of the Maya people around a lake of Matilan. like I said, it's a ton of extra work, but it also gave them a lot of explanatory power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in case you're wondering about pollen, pollen is, so one, it's super stable, so it doesn't really decay. And if you look at pollen under a microscope, it's really unique to whatever plant it's from. So if you're getting a lot of, obviously, if you're getting a lot of pollen, there's probably a lot of forest around you. Yeah. And then depending on what the pollen is, you like, Oh, it's a lot of forest or, Oh, it was a lot of agriculture because there's a lot of corn pollen, stuff like that. Sounds really yeah. tedious. Cause you're just counting pollen, but yeah. Yeah. From dirt. But uh, based off of all of this, the team was able to conclude that the Maya people around Lake Amatitlan experienced harmful algal blooms of similar intensity to what is seen today. The period of peak cyanobacteria concentrations corresponded to the estimated peak of the Maya population around the lake, along with intensive agriculture and terrestrial erosion. This was also happening around the time of the Maya collapse. Again, the Maya were a major civilization of Central America, but their sudden collapse is one of history's greatest mysteries. Now, the research team does not conclude that deteriorating water quality was the sole reason for why the Maya people abandoned their cities in the area, but it was surely a stressor. So what do, you, what do you think about all that, Riley? It's pretty interesting, huh? I'm That's like great. I said, in in much more recent history, there are written records of naturalists stumbling stumbling upon green lakes that killed cattle, or sailors mm. getting sick from eating mussels out of algae written bays. But to be able to say that the Romans and Maya, which are two of history's greatest civilizations, both experienced <clears throat> intense harmful algal blooms without written records is like baffling to me it's pretty powerful pretty crazy yeah Yeah.
1: so yeah that would be interesting yeah it's hard i mean you said there's no written record but like if there was a written record Mm -hmm. not in these two cultures but different cultures and they're like there's like an unknown sickness and then it happens to be like an algal related like liver you know failure like type conditions then they're like yeah check the so maybe waters is on the um professor from auburn mm-hmm. uh waters is on the the search that'd be quite the paper
0: yeah like i said there's there's been a lot of work in central america kind of trying to figure out why the maya collapse happened there mm-hmm. were ideas that the cities just got too crowded and like disease was spreading so everyone just kind of fanned out across the um uh, like the the whatever like the more rural areas i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't necessarily the population collapsed; They just more dispersed. And then there's all other kind of stuff like, oh, so the Maya wasn't exactly a peaceful. So it wasn't. So the Roman Empire also wasn't very peaceful. Shocker. What? But it was much more unified and that it was kind of governed pretty strictly. And there was kind of, you know, like a recognized emperor or consul system going mm-hmm. on there where the Maya. It was a lot more like there wasn't one recognized king or monarch in general there was like each city had its own thing going on and then rival cities would end up attacking each other. So there's an idea. There's just like a bunch of wars happened one after another. So then like cities just kind of got wiped out in a really short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's all, that's all I had today. But if anyone wants to read more about this and similar papers, again, uh, head on over to freshwaterperspectives.substack.com. We got this and all other slew of other articles up there. And if you want to go ahead and suggest, I mean, send us uh, any comments, questions, concerns, feedback, or ideas for other podcasts, go ahead and send us an email at fwperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. See you, Riley. See you, man.